Welcome to our Agile Tales, where we share the various successes and trials we have encountered as we navigate corporate levels and political waters to transform the business to be adaptable to this forever changing world. Today, we continue our conversation with Stephen Parry on changing the way you change. If you missed our previous episodes, we suggest you listen to them first. And now, a little bit of information about Stephen. He is the founder and senior partner at the Sense and Adapt Academy. They help create lean and agile enterprises through long-term, high-performing change teams that focus on customer centricity while building appealing work environments and culture. He is the author of Sense and Respond, The Journey to Customer Purpose, and is recognized as a world-class expert and multi-award winning transformation leader. Let's all welcome Stephen Perry to our Agile Tales. Hi Stephen, thank you for being in another episode of our Agile Tales. We'll continue our chat about changing the way we change. What is the most disappointing change that you have worked on? I want to answer your question about the most disappointing because I worked with this high-tech company, several thousand people that had some of the traditional measurements that I talked about. The team went and looked at the opportunity and found new ways of creating new revenue and massive, easy ways of reducing the cost. They presented this to a very senior manager and he wasn't senior enough to be on the board, but he said, that's fabulous. I can see how I can reduce my operating costs and I can see how I can create revenue, but technically that's not my job. That's somebody else's because I'm a cost center. But I tell you what he said, what I will do because the board every year come back and ask for another 10%. They do it every year, cost reduction. So this year, I'm not going to reduce it by 35%, which you showed me. It's quite easy. I'm going to reduce it by 12%. And I'll put the rest in my back pocket when they ask me next year. So I said, well, what makes you think you're going to be here next year with your costs at this level? And he said, they're always asking this. 18 months later, 15,000 people had disappeared to offshore jobs. That didn't need to. So when you talk about what's disappointing, I look at creating job security through differentiation and making the business profitable, not a mindset where I am protecting the opportunity because I can put that in my back pocket. Wow, that is rather disappointing indeed. Well, let's change the question to more, a bit more upbeat. What's the most challenging but most rewarding change that you've been through? I think it's the one in the case study, actually. If you want to know the one in the case study, it's gone into depth in the seminar version. The most complex and rewarding piece of work that I did was with the case study. And there are a number of features of that which were quite extraordinary and unusual. Many of the things that we've done were done with other companies. But in this case, all the things that we did came together in one company. And that was what was quite extraordinary. So I was asked by a senior manager there, the senior vice president, needed to transform this business because there were business pressures. And he said, how long does it take to do the analysis, train these people up, and then get moving into making the changes? And I said, it's usually four months. And he said, you got 22 days. And I was shocked. And I said, you have to give me your best people. We'll do this. 
and I have to deliver this in a very different way. So this was much more hands-on, but it was totally immersive. So I split the teams up into different teams to go away and do work, and then came back and reorganized the teams to do other work. So they were bringing information back and learning at the same time. So I was supervising six different teams. Then they come back, analyze it. So it is very agile in that approach of gathering information about what's going on. But part of the system was getting the information that would be needed to create a sense and respond business, what I can call sense and adapt, because that was a different strategy. So they needed to figure out well, what would need to change to enable that. And we got through that in, in 22 days as it happened. And one of the biggest issues that I had was because we were moving so fast and we had sort of ring-fenced these people that were going through personal transformation in understanding how organizations worked, they started understanding some of the basic problems that they've got today were because of some silly things that were working against them that they hadn't been aware of. So their knowledge and experience, they could now start to predict if you've got this measurement in place and that performance, what are likely outcomes? In exactly the same way that I talk, because you can predict if you know how those are linked. So they started learning that. But communication was the problem because we were holed up within this, this global team. And senior manager would come in now and again, are you all right? You're doing this? Yes. But it was very much hands off. And I said, I had this notion. Is anybody a writer in this group? Anybody who's written a book or ever thought about writing a book? And this hand goes up. He says, well, I'm a writer. I said, fine. What I'd like you to do is to write your thoughts every day and publish them to the whole management team and the entire workforce. And it's your experience of going through this. It is not to make me look good. It's not to make the people around you look good. It is you. It is your personal journey going through this. And he did that. And every day he would talk about what team he was in, the questions that we were raising, the doubts of whether we could do that. And it was just a marvelous story. And I didn't go up to him and say, no, you need to edit that out. It was a major reflection. Everybody had to do daily reflections, but his were published. And at the end of that, I had this book, Bound. It was all his daily reflections and the illustrations that they created. So they bound that. But the most important thing in here, in this book, is there are pictures of the leadership team. That means everybody that was on the team. What I asked them to do so that they could get to know them, what they name, their location, what they were an expert at, who were their favorite leaders, really important, what were their favorite sports and what was their favorite subject in school? And those were up around. This helped me when making the teams. Now, the interesting thing about the favorite leader, whether it's a fictional person or a real life person or a member of family or the community, it doesn't matter. What that was telling me was there was a leadership style they wanted to be led by. And I had to adjust my style to the group of people that would come together. Or I would even say, you're in this group, you know, JF likes somebody being directed when he needs to be. 
other people need to be collaborative. So understand you've got these dynamics and use those to your strengths. So they started learning and they started identifying them in their colleagues back at work. And there was all sorts of people like some people said, oh, Madonna was an inspiration, how she grew up from nothing, became a multimillionaire. But I got to know them really, really well. But the good thing is there's the favorite subjects was economics. Why? Because it's a combination of theory and real life. Favorite mathematics, clear tasks, clear results, basis for science. Another one says my friend because he's interested in natural science and I am, and I'm inquisitive. This is the most precious book in my library. And we changed the organization. I don't need to tell you anymore because it's in the seminar. And a lot of those people went on into leadership roles. Some of them actually left the business and said, I now know what I need to do and want to do. Wow. That's a very positive and fun experience, even though it's quite yeah. challenging. Uh, obviously, the team rose to the challenge. 22 days. My goodness. Yeah. There was some improvisation under pressure with a team that is bright, very diverse. It was inclusive, totally inclusive and immersive. And there were things like I was teaching them, okay, what I want this team to do, I want you to describe the prototype operating model as if it's a dolphin. And another group, I want you to describe this as if it's a city. And there were all these different versions of this as an ecosystem. And then what they did is because they knew the model, they had this experience, but what they were learning now is how to articulate it because they were going to talk to managers and their staff. It's all very well having the knowledge, but to be able to make it meaningful to the people outside, you have to learn how do I make something meaningful to the CFO, to HR, the operations manager, the team leaders. I can't give them the whole same story. So I challenged them with that. And then what happened, there was one guy who was an architect and he was a genuine architect. He was also an architect in infrastructure, but he was a genuine architecture and architect in buildings. I said, right, create a building, not a city this time, a building that demonstrates the operating model that we're trying to put together. And these people were just brilliant. And I was learning so much more because we created something, but we were taking these different takes on this. And out of this, people were learning how to improvise on the spot. And one of the other things that was very important, and I'm saying this with a word of caution, is in those situations, I am very keen to give them phrases that they can latch on to, which is a metaphor, because they're going to come under pressure when they're explaining this and then trying to experiment with it later. So they needed a very simple metaphor, like we're fixing too many tires and we need to fix the road. And people go, well, oh, yeah, I get that. So that creates with it a whole set of concepts. Another saying then is if you are trying to use data to influence managers, is you always get it from the customer's perspective, not your own perspective. But you've got to have data from the customer's perspective. And this is important because all of those people that we were talking about want to talk from their internal siloed perspective for the measurement that they have to hit for the performance evaluation that comes later. But the only thing that's common is the customer. And I'm saying you have to get customer data from the customer's perspective right through to the end-to-end -end business, measuring it, total lapse time, everything, where it goes. 
And I said, this is the saying, the customer is your shield. Your data is your sword. And when you're armed with that, you're not going to have any fights with anybody because your data is solid and you're talking from a customer's perspective. And it's not politically correct for anybody, particularly senior managers, to say they don't give a damn about that. Once the data is in the real world, you have to respond to it. And when they see how the end-to-end business really delivers to the customer, and we are not meeting their actual needs, but we are meeting the specification. We are now in a situation that we are going to get customer and client churn, but we can now change that. So it starts and ends with customer because it's a safe place. And there are dozens of sayings, and they even put together a book of all of these sayings. The point of that was to act within the team to just get these micro concepts that they could communicate instead of digging like I have been today into the mechanics and the dynamics of how measurement works, because people are going to get bored with that. And that's very important that you learn a language that you can communicate. And people loved this book. They were waiting for the edition to come out every morning. Finally, we are asked to do and think on things completely differently. Finally, we were asked to stop accepting mediocrity. Finally, it's welcome to listen to our inbuilt BS detector. Finally, we have been requested to tell if we think that things are not right and how they could be done. Finally, we stop lying to each other and reframing problems until they disappear. My impression on today is that like myself, there are many of my colleagues in the group who want to say something about this, that and the other because they well know that things are not okay but we have to shut up and do. They feel an urge to contribute what they know, what they think about the topics and the questions that we discuss. And I notice that there is a lot of emotion behind these discussions. We are rather disrupting and arguing rather than discussing, comparing the business to what we're doing here. And the book is full of that. Wow. That's a wonderful memory. And I am so glad to hear you say that you're actually teaching people that while they know how to do things is one thing, but they need to know how to explain it to the people outside of the group. And they have to know how to explain it to various groups because you have to speak the language. It's great to actually hear you say that. And it's, I think for everyone that we really need to learn this is how do you talk to the different groups that in their language that they understand in things that they care about. So it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I'm going to change tech a little bit, if you don't mind, because I'm very curious with the approach that you proposed. Does lean change management actually play a role in this process? Those are two, three very, very big words. The short answer is yes, but it depends how you do it. Because if lean change management in a factory type model, an industrial model, looks very different in an adaptive model. And if you've got investments in agile, Six Sigma, lean, and a lot of good methods, that's great that if people have learned how to do that in the traditional model, my job is to help them look at what the consequences of that and to discover for themselves, just like the team discovered. I am looking at this from a different frame, disguise it 
talk to me as if you're a dolphin. It's a different frame. And then you see the disconnects that you were walking past. But when you have what I call the change community, which is what these people were, they were involved in change. Some of them were managers, some of the specialists in various things. You're taking them collectively through another way of design, building and operating. And then what does that mean for the way we change manage people? What does that mean for how we make decisions? What does that mean for how we reward and recognize people? So these were all the things that they were learning. So the investments previously are not thrown out. They are leveraged, but they've gone up to a different order of magnitude to understand how they all play out together. Thank you so much for answering that question. That is actually a question from one of our listeners. So here's another question from one of our listeners. They would like to know, actually, has Cunevin been an inspiration in your work? Uh, short answer is no. I stayed away from it deliberately. Some of the wording is very similar, particularly the sense and respond, sense and adapt. What I've read about it, it's a great system. I see its purpose, and I'm quite willing to be educated on this because I deliberately stayed away, and I'll tell you why in a minute, is it's really at understanding What's the best way to approach a problem? And it's, it's very good at really understanding the nature of the problem, the dynamics of the problem itself. That's it for our episode. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Join us next time as we continue our conversation with Stephen Perry on changing the way you change. <laughs>